All right, church, if you'll go ahead and open your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2, after four sessions in Ephesians chapter 1, we have made our way into chapter 2. Hopefully, uh, I really pray that this series has been as uh, edifying and beneficial to you as it has been for me. But I just want to kind of look back at chapter 1 real quick before we dive in and get ready for this morning's sermon. Hopefully on your way in you grabbed an outline as that will be our guide through God's Word this morning. And the answers to that outline will be on the screen behind me. But we started off chapter 1 looking at uh, the first of obviously the, the greeting and seeing how even in the greeting of these epistles we see uh, these great truths declared of, of testimony of Paul's uh, acceptance of, of the office that God has given him and the place that God has presented him but also in the praying of grace and peace to the church. And then we saw in verses 3 through 14, this one long sentence of exclamation of praise of God's glory and how in, intricately woven in this one sentence is uh, every office of or every person of the Trinity showing how our, our salvation, our inheritance, our redemption is a triune work in looking and moving through this exclamation of praise. We've seen above and beyond the exclamation of God's grace to us in Christ. And we saw this repetition of in Christ, in Christ, in Christ. And so that moved us then to seeing this thanksgiving, an exclamation of thanksgiving. Another long sentence that starts in verse 15. And seeing, uh, we, we broke that down last week and seeing Paul's giving thanks for the church, but then also his prayer for the church that they would be able to grasp all of these incredible depths of riches of God's grace to us in Christ. And so now we move to chapter 2. And we've, I've reminded us throughout, but uh, the, the letter to the Ephesians here is broken down. You can separate it into these first three chapters being primarily focused on sound doctrine and a knowledge of who God is and what God has done and this then moves into the second half of the letter where we see how does that then impact how we live? How do we live in light of who God is and how does that challenge us or, or call us to repentance? And I want to warn you up front this morning that this morning's sermon will be heavy at the start as we begin chapter 2 here. It's going to force us to grapple with realities which we don't often like to consider. Especially realities that we don't like to often consider about ourselves. However, I think you'll see that in grappling with these realities or what, how God's word calls us to grapple with these realities. That in doing so we find a greater understanding of ourselves. We find a greater understanding of our sinful world. And then that therefore deepens our appreciation for God's grace. And it, it, it expounds our praise of God's grace. And this will lead us to rejoicing in hope. So we're going to be heavy at the front, but there's going to be a lot of rejoicing. That is going to embolden and empower our rejoicing in hope on the back end of this morning's sermon. Because as we continue to watch our culture's response 
to Friday's ruling. As we continue to see the mounting cultural pressure throughout our society that is against the family, against all of these things that are integral, integral to our faith. This morning we're going to be given a clear reference from Scripture as to why we see such a high level of anger and vitriol and mounting pressure. I've got six main points and a few sub-points that highlight these truths revealed in God's text this morning. And I'm going to challenge us to see the depths of our depravity and the abundant riches of God's grace. We'll see why the world is so bent toward evil and why our hearts cry out against evil. And by our, I mean those who have been redeemed. We'll also be challenged with the truth that God's grace is so much deeper than the depths of our depravity. And so with that, I'm going to ask you to stand this morning in honor of the reading of God's word as we look at Ephesians chapter 2, starting in verse 1. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So that in the coming ages, we might show the, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Let's pray. God, as we seek you in your word this morning, we know that your word is living and effective. And I pray that it would cut away the rocky, hard calluses of our hearts, that it would shine light on the dark corners, that it would reveal areas which we desperately seek to keep hidden, but that desperately need to be brought to the light so that we can seek to live according to your truth, according to your word, so that we can walk according to the good works which you have created beforehand. God, do work in our hearts this morning according to your word that we may not leave this place the same. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Thank you, church. You may be seated. So as we wrap up chapter one in which 
the theology is richly rooted in the Trinity and God's providential working of history toward the goal of His glory, which is realized in Christ the Son, we have this transition of Paul's thanksgiving and prayer for the church, which we looked at last week. And now we enter chapter 2, where we see the important truth that a firm understanding of who God is and what He accomplished in Christ informs our understanding of ourselves. And this begins with verse 1. So we now have in chapter 1 this firm, deeply rooted understanding of, of who God is and what He has accomplished in Christ and who we are in light of being in Christ. That if we are found in Him, this uh, exponentially impacts our lives and how we lived in light of that fact. And now we see a greater understanding of exactly what we were saved from. And this begins in verse 1 here of chapter 2. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins. So we're going to pause right there. And so we see here even in verse 1. The utter depravity in which we lived in our former lives. That before we were in Christ, as we saw expounded for us in chapter 1, that this was the state of our lives. Utter depraved deadness. And this is what it means to be totally helpless. This is what it means to be Lazarus in the grave. This is what it means to be Jairus pleading for Jesus to save his little girl because she was dead. This is why... They sent for Jesus because his friend Lazarus was dead. We must have a firm understanding of this concept of our spiritual deadness in order to truly appreciate everything that we've already unpacked in chapter 1 and to grasp the implications of everything that we're getting ready to read. Our literal condition as a result of sin was that we were dead. We cannot truly understand what is the immeasurable greatness of His power toward us who believe. We cannot truly have the eyes of our hearts enlightened. We cannot truly appreciate our redemption, our inheritance, the riches of His grace until we have a thorough understanding of our need for a Savior. And we needed saving because we were dead. Why do we need saving? What, what do we need saving from? How did we get to this position? All of these are questions that not only does the world not have answers to, the world isn't even asking these questions. Because in their minds, all of these things are found in themselves, in the world. And so in their mind, there is no questioning. Because when the self is your true God, then you naturally don't want to see anything wrong with yourself. Rather, you seek to build a little kingdom in your image. And this is our modern culture, seeking to satisfy the desires of the self, seeking to satisfy or proclaim one's own truth, constantly building up their own kingdom. This is the life of those who are outside of Christ. This is the life of those who are dead in trespasses and sins. 
So they seek to wring every drop of happiness that there is out of this life until they eventually realize that it was all a lie. So why, after all of these incredible words of expounding upon the greatness of God's grace and his power and his love and his mercy and our inheritance in Christ and how he has redeemed us, why does Paul, after saying all of these great things, then transition to pointing out our past sinful condition of death and depravity? Because a greater understanding of our depravity deepens our praise of God's grace. When we are truly able to grasp just how sinful we were and are. When we are truly able to grasp that we were living in a grave, then we can understand just how deep God's grace went to pull us out. Everything that Paul has been breaking down, expounding upon, has been to magnify the reality that God's grace has been, did, and is accomplishing all of this in us so that we may be to the praise of his glory. But until we begin to grasp the depths of our depravity, we will never truly begin to understand the depths of God's grace. Because as deep as our depravity runs, his grace runs deeper. As great as our depravity is, his mercy is more. For consider what Paul exclaimed to the church at Rome in Romans chapter 11, verses 33 through 36. The verse will be on the screen for you. When he said, oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. What Christ has accomplished in our redemption is so much more than a simple cleansing of a few bad deeds or the doing away of of a small list of bad things that we've done. We discount God's grace when we try to simplify our sin as just a list of some of the bad stuff we've done. Because Christ's work on the cross accomplished so much more than doing away with a small list. Rather, it completely resurrected our lives from the utter depravity of death in our sin. It is the complete resurrection of a life that was utterly depraved. It is the stooping low of he who was so high, reaching down into the grave to bring us from death to life by first putting himself to death and through the grave. So let us not fool ourselves for a second in thinking that, and now thinking that our, in our salvation, that we must strive to outweigh our bad with our good. Rather, let us celebrate the overwhelming power and grace of God to bring us from death to life in Christ. 
We cannot grasp the power, uh, the, the power that God is working in us who believe as the same power at work in Christ's resurrection if we do not have a firm understanding of why we need a Savior. As this was Paul's prayer, there beginning in verse 15, that they would be able to grasp these things, to understand the immeasurable riches of God's grace, the immeasurable power, that they would be able to have understanding of it. Well, we can't begin to understand it if we don't know where we started. And so if you're here this morning, you have not surrendered your life to Christ. This is the gospel. This is the life that lay before you. To continue to walk in the ways of depravity and death or to submit to his way, his rule, his grace and find everlasting life. Because as we continue reading, we see that in our depravity, this death was not something we belabored, but something we relished in. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. Notice how the description of us is not that we labored or battled or sought to do good. The description of us in our dead state of being is that we willingly and simply walked in this way of life. We did not die because we sinned. Do you see that? That we did not die because we sinned. What, what do we mean by that? That there has never been a point in our life in which we were not sinful. So that then we committed our first sin and then that rendered us sinfully and thus dead. No, rather we were born into death because we are sinful by nature. And that is the next little sub point that you'll see there on your outline that we are sinful by nature. You were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. So now we get down to the truth of what brought us into this state of being. And the truth hurts. This is the unfettered reality which we who are now saved sometimes struggle with. The reality that, yes, the world is broken in sinfulness and enjoying the worship of self. Yes, we can look at the actions of those on the outside and condemn them. But we too were once there. And indeed, our nature would have us pulled back down into that grave were it not for the sustaining faithful grace of God. Now that we are in Christ, we no longer walk in our trespasses and sins as active participants. Instead, we daily do battle with our flesh as we pursue Christ's likeness. And this is the exact dichotomy which Paul is setting up for us. This is the contrast between our life and the grace in the grave of sin and our new life in light of everything that he has just exclaimed in chapter 1. This is the contrast he's setting up. You were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you walked past tense. Therefore, meaning that now you no longer live this way. You no longer actively participate in these things. You're no longer passively just walking through life seeking to pursue your own desires. 
But what is the contrast? What is he setting that up in contrast to? Well, we've got to continue reading. Notice, though, how we walked in death. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you walked following the course of this world. So there are two realities at play here. We once walked in death, enslaved to our trespasses and sins, And not only was this natural to us, but we were just simply following the course of this world. So when we're walking in death, everything that was natural, everything that seemed natural, made us fit in with the world or seemed right, that allowed us to be comfortable with the world, actually meant that we were on the course of this world. When we were walking that course, everything seemed so much easier that we could just go with the flow, be one with the culture. There were a lot more people around us in that life. There wasn't as much mounting cultural pressure against us. But what happened? The power of God's grace called us and drug us out of our grave and set us on a new course, one that is much smaller and in many ways much harder, has fewer people, puts us at odds with those who are walking the other course. Jesus talked about this in his Sermon on the Mount, right? In Matthew 7, verses 13 through 14, where he told them, enter by the narrow gate, For the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life. And those who find it are few. So we must be extra careful if we ever find ourselves comfortable in this world. That's the challenge. That if we are seeking to just blend in, be one, not really stir up anybody's feelings, not try to hurt anybody, not just just try to do our own thing, stay quiet, or maybe we'll just make some concessions here so that we can be accepting and, and affirming. Well, this is the way of the world, the course of the world that we once walked in. So when we walked that course, everything was comfortable. Everything was good because we were just fulfilling our desires with temporary pleasures. Why does the way seem so easy? Well, as we've seen, it starts with our nature. We are sinful and fallen by nature. And so... When we're walking that course, everything is natural because we're following the crowd. But when we're walking that narrow way, it gets much harder. The way is much tighter. It's harder to stay on the path. There's less people with us. And not only that, we're moving against the current of that wide, broad, easy path. But there's something else at play that Paul points out. That not only were we just fulfilling our nature, not only were we just walking in accordance with the course of this world, but there is another 
element at play here. As we continue reading the next part of verse 2. You were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. See, the reality that is hard for us to think about or grasp sometimes, and that we often forget, is that element of spiritual warfare. That we are sinful by nature. And that in that life, when we walked the course of this world, we were under the rule of Satan. So not only were we depraved by nature, but we were being led by the prince of the power of the air. And therefore, we were considered sons of disobedience. And I'll continue to point out, but notice this continued use of familial language. We had that we were sons of inheritance in chapter 1. And now as he brings about this contrast, he uses the contrast of sons of disobedience here at the beginning of chapter 2. Now, this idea that we were under the rule of Satan might cause some to recoil, to think to yourself, no way. Not me. And some even refer to this sometimes tongue-in-cheek or, or uh, they go over the top by saying that's of the devil or, or this is all of the devil. This is of the devil. That is of the devil. But there's an element of truth to all of that because we see that there is one who is ruling this world currently. There's a reason why it seems so easy for our culture to be united in pursuing the things that go against God's way. There's a reason why all of this seems so tempting to them, so fulfilling to them. And it's because, and not part of realizing our own depravity, is having the humility to acknowledge that our sinful nature once allowed us to be easily led astray by the enemy. This might tempt us to ask, well, if this is so clear. Life, death, depravity, grace. Why don't more people see it? It's because they're actively being deceived. They're actively being led astray. They've been blinded. This is what we see, that we were once blind. But by God's grace, that veil has been removed from our eyes. This is the truth of Romans 1, that we once had that hardness of heart. But there's a battle raging around us that we too often do not acknowledge or prepare ourselves for. That our battle is not against flesh and blood, as Paul will say later on. And so the challenge for us to consider is do we prepare ourselves for battle? Do we prepare our children, our grandchildren for battle each day? For senior adults, maybe it's that the enemy is tempting you to think that your life is no longer of value or importance. Don't believe it. Because that enemy is actively seeking to distract us from that narrow way, to draw us back to that wide path. 
Seek the Lord for guidance on how you can still be, to know, to have your identity anchored in Christ and know that you are still of service to his church and for his glory. For parents, the arrows may seem like they're coming from all directions. Attacks against the family, gender ideologies, critical race theory, education system, this or that. Where does all of this come from? Why does all of culture seem to be so united? And why does it seem so overwhelming? Why does each successive generation look back on their time as better than it is now? Why does the world as it is now seem to be ordered against the Lord and His church? It's because everything is working in sinful harmony under its ruler. Because our enemy rules this age. He rules this world. So all those who are not in Christ are slaves of his. He's the prince of the power of the air. And he's so entrenched in this world that he's as close to the lost as the air in their lungs. Broad is the way that leads to destruction. And this is why as long as we are in this world, we will continue to be outnumbered. We will continue to have to be comfortable with being uncomfortable. We will be outcasts. And this is why there can be no comfortable Christianity. Because the minute we become comfortable with this world, we enslave ourselves to the enemy. And this is the contrast that Paul continues to develop as we keep reading. Because though he gives him this title of the prince of the power of the air, well, princes are subservient. We'll continue reading. Verse 3. Among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath. So there's that familial language there again. We have sons of inheritance. We've all been adopted as sons and been considered worthy through Christ of receiving the inheritance of redemption. Now we have this contrast building of sons of disobedience and children of wrath like the rest of mankind. So Paul here is continuing to build this contrast and so clearly wants, to see the, wants the church to see this contrast. That for those who are in Christ, all of this is to be in the past. And so we were once ruled by a foreign, by, by a foreign prince, the prince, the power of the air. We were once following the course of this world, but no longer. And here we see that those who are outside of Christ are by nature children of wrath. Here we see the challenge that we will all stand before the Father as those made in His image, as His children. The question which looms is, will you stand before Him in Christ as a son of inheritance? Or will you stand before Him as a child of wrath? We see the story of the prodigal son. Which son enjoys the riches of grace from the Father and which son walks away empty-handed and despondent? We are not meant to be comfortable in this world because our enemy rules the air of this world. 
And this is why our culture seeks a false sense of being at peace with the ways of this world. As we've said, be inclusive, be accepting, be affirming. What happened? What changed? How how is this now past tense? Well, everything that Paul has exclaimed in chapter 1, all of the goodness, all of the depths of the riches of God's grace, the power that he worked in Christ through the grave, that he worked in us, that is how all of that is able to be past tense. That is why none of this is how we live now. That is why that prince of the power of the air is on a leash. If we continue reading verse 4, we see why all of that is past tense. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. So we have an enemy. We have a foreign prince who rules this world. But we have an enemy whose tongue may be smooth and may be deceptive. He may be able to draw many to that wide path. And although his tongue is smooth, his bite is fangless. That's the next point on your outline this morning. Because through the cross and through the grave, the enemy's bite of death was rendered ineffective for those who are in Christ. So even while we were in the grave of our sinfulness and our depravity, following the wide course of this world, following the one who rules this world, living as sons of disobedience, he made us alive together with Christ. But God. So it was God's own self-motivated intrinsic action that promoted him to act, that moved him to action. But notice where he acted from. He could have acted from his wrath, his justice, his discipline, and been completely justified in doing so because of how depraved we were. But God, being rich in mercy, We ought to rejoice and praise that God is rich in mercy. And because of his great love with which he loves us. So again, from the foundation of the world, his love has been the motivating factor in choosing us and saving us. Notice how we keep seeing these words of extravagance used. Describe God's grace, describe God's mercy, his power, his love. That's because that's exactly what it took to save people as lost and depraved as us. It took an account of grace, an account of mercy, an account of power that far exceeds the limits of our own depravity. Even when we were dead, Oh, the depths of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. I read that for us earlier in Romans chapter 11. I started in verse 33, but we see, we see this in Romans 11, 
32. The verse right before that. For God has consigned all to disobedience that he might have mercy on all. Oh, the depths of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. Mercy on all, what does that mean? Because we've seen here in Ephesians how it is clear that there are those who who God has, has chosen and who has redeemed and he has chosen to adopt as sons of inheritance. The all here is simply referring to that there are the, the Jews and Gentiles are now both grafted into the family of God in the church. For God has consigned to all, so both Jews and Gentiles, to disobedience. That, that all people are in disobedience. It's not just you, Israel, Jews, who think that you are high and mighty above all, but all are consigned to disobedience. Why? So that both Jews and Gentiles, God can show his mercy in Christ to redeem for himself a people for his own possession. Oh, the depths of the riches and wisdom and the knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and inscrutable his ways. For from him and through him and to him are all things. As Paul, as we continue to hold on to those themes from chapter 1, as Paul's point is that this has been God's design from the beginning. That even when we are actively his enemies, following our sinful nature, following the prince of the power of the air. Consider that. That while we were actively his enemies, even then, he made us alive in Christ. Then notice the contextual point that Paul offers here back in Ephesians. He didn't want them to miss the main idea of what he had just said. By grace you have been saved. So this is the good news. Understanding our depravity makes all of this seem so much bigger. So much more unbelievable. According to the graceless standards of this world. That when we consider all that Paul is laying out here. That when we were dead and actively enemies of God. God set forth in Christ to bring us out of that grave. By his grace. Even when we were dead in our trespasses, he raised us up and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ. That's verse 6. So we see first in verse 5 that we have been resurrected together with Christ. That's what we see. That even when we were dead in our trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ. So Christ's resurrection guarantees our resurrection. So just to make sure we're tracking, in and of ourselves, we are by nature dead, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air. But because of God's providential grace at work in Christ on the cross, we have been resurrected from our grave of sin. And then in verse 6, we see that he also, not only has he raised us up, but he raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So we have been resurrected together with Christ and we have been seated with Christ. And when you consider this, 
in light of what we see in chapter 1, or what we saw in chapter 1, verses 3 through 5. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will. So in Christ, we have a mediator who is ever before God the Father interceding on our behalf. But it gets even better. As Christ is seated at the right hand of God the Father, he has seated us with him and given us every spiritual blessing, meaning our belonging is no longer to this world. Our citizenship is not according to the prince of the power of the air, but our citizenship is according to the king of kings and lord of lords. The one who we are following is no longer he who walks in darkness and is deceiver, but he who has declared his truth for all to see. The high king of heaven. In Christ, we are seated in the heavenly places in fellowship with God the Father. And this is why we should not even desire to be comfortable in this world when our citizenship has already been guaranteed elsewhere. As we continue reading verse 7, we see what God's goal in producing this is in us. What is God's goal? Well, so that, verse 7, in the coming ages, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. So why did God save us? Why has he seated us in the heavenly places when we were once his enemies, once following that wide path, following the course of this world, so that he can display his glory of his grace and mercy in us and through us. We are trophies of God's grace. The idea here of the coming ages is that of eternity. So do you grasp this idea that he has done all of this in Christ according to his providential love and grace for the express purpose of showing and displaying, making known the immeasurable riches of his grace toward us? So that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. In Christ we have been guaranteed eternity with him. We've been guaranteed eternity. Ordained from eternity past, guaranteed for eternity future. As we enter this, those last few verses there, starting in verse 8, it's all summed up in this. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship. Created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. We who once walked in death and trespasses and sins 
following the wide course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, we who were once sons of disobedience, walking in all of these things, children of wrath, now we walk in the good works which God created us for and prepared for us from the foundation of the world as children of inheritance. We who were once his enemies and objects of his wrath are now seated with him in Christ at the table of his grace. So that's why this morning we'll observe the Lord's Supper. Because it so beautifully displays this testimony of the very thing that it took to pay the price, to atone for our sinfulness, to atone for walking in the course of this world, to atone for our willingly following the prince of the power of the air. And it was by the breaking of his body and the spilling of his blood that we now sit at his table, that we are now seated with Christ by his grace. So that he might display his glory. Our testimonies are powerful portraits of the immeasurable riches of God's grace. Here in just a little bit, I'm going to pray for us. As I do that, I'm going to go ahead and ask if, you'll, uh, if you have a child in the nursery, if you'll go ahead and get them so that we can absorb, the, all of our church family can absorb the Lord's Supper with us, our, including our nursery workers. But I want us to, to, to grasp this real quick. That everyone who has been redeemed from a life of sin and shame, brought from death to life, has a story to tell of God's grace. From the youngest believer to the oldest believer, your testimony only ceases to bear fruit when you believe the lies of the enemy, that it doesn't matter or is not powerful. Your testimony doesn't have an expiration date. So stop being passive in Sunday school. Boast of the immeasurable riches of God's grace. Stop being timid in conversation out and about. Oh, well, I'm too young or I'm just too old. I'm an old man or I'm an old woman or I don't know what to say. Or Stop. Our testimonies are powerful portraits of the immeasurable riches of God's grace. And indeed, this is why we are called his workmanship. So that in the coming ages, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ. So church, do not desire comfort in this life. Prepare yourself for daily battle by fixing your anchor in Christ knowing that in Christ, we are already seated in the heavenly places. I'm going to pray for us, and then we will observe the Lord's Supper together. Lord, we love you. We thank you for your immeasurable grace and riches that have been displayed for us in Christ. God, help us to even just begin to grasp the power that you displayed in bringing us from death to life. The same power that brought Christ from death to life in the grave is the same power that you have displayed in our life. 
God, help us to see that we are your workmanship. You are putting our testimony on display to further proclaim your glory in all the earth. Created in Christ Jesus for good works, which you prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. No longer walking as children of wrath, but now walking as children of inheritance. We praise you for this grace. Now, God, as we declare your word through observing the Lord's Supper, I pray that you would help us to observe our own hearts, that we, you would help us to not partake in this in an unworthy manner, but that it would be pleasing in your sight and worshipful to you. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.